Well, this morning I would invite you to turn with me to Genesis 27 together in your copy of the Holy Scripture, Genesis 27. Every family experiences some drama in the course of family life. And the drama may be entertaining or the drama may be devastating. The family drama that is devastating may be the consequence of one family member who is selfish or another family member who is dishonest or perhaps yet a different family member who is jealous or irresponsible. The family drama might be over money or miscommunication or the mismanagement of some situation. And family drama becomes devastating because the family we love most are the ones that we hurt the worst at the same time. If it's any comfort to you, family drama is not unique to your family. Since the fall of man, families have struggled to live rightly before God and before one another in peace. Think of the the first family. Adam and Eve, and of course their two boys, Cain and Abel. What a horrific beginning to the human race that the first sibling rivalry ended in murder. Think of King David. Of course, the shepherd boy, the man after God's own heart, he was unfaithful in his marriage. And then his own son Absalom led a rebellion to overthrow the throne. For our purposes this morning, think of the founding families of the Hebrew people. First, of course, it was Abraham and Sarah and their sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Then it was Isaac and Rebekah with their sons, Jacob and Esau. And devastating drama occurs in a family when one one member violates another and that the rest of the family members inject themselves into the conflict in only a way that family can do. And in the the end, it's, it's a hot mess. In Genesis 27, we have an occasion, an account of one of those messes. It's a sad account. On every human level, each player, we would call it dysfunctional at best. We have before us in Genesis 27 a dysfunctional family. But nonetheless, the message of the morning is is this. God is always in control. And God can accomplish his purposes even when we are dysfunctional. I've written here at the top of your notes, without excusing our sin and selfishness, that's our brokenness as families. We can take comfort in knowing God is still at work even when we fail. And I submit to you this morning that that is the ultimate blessing. And so from Genesis 27, I prepared a message titled, Broken Blessing, Broken Blessing. Let's pause for prayer. God in heaven, we want to see Christ always, first and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and the reconciliation he brings for the death on the cross. We thank you for his shed blood. We thank you for his resurrection. Lord, help us to see Christ But Lord, many times our attention is captured by the dysfunction of our our own families. We fail. Lord, we fight. And Lord, we dishonor you and one another in so many ways. But yet we're comforted to know that you work among us 
for your glory and our good in spite of ourselves. And Lord, this is a true blessing and we're grateful for it. As we read this Old Testament account, as we study the, the scripture now, I pray that you would give us encouragement, for I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 27, beginning in verse number one. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my, my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac is 137 years old at this point. And because Isaac's stepbrother Ishmael died at 137 years old, Isaac may have assumed that he was about to die as well. It turned out that Isaac would live yet another 43 years, dying at the ripe old age of 180, according to chapter 35, verse 28. But Isaac's thoughts are of dying at this point, and he rightly said that he did not know the day of his death. None of us know the day of our, of our death. All we know is that our lives are like a vapor. They appear for a short time, and then they vanish away. All we know is that our, our, our lives are like the grass of the field that grows up one day and then is quickly gone. So Isaac decided that he should take care of matters of life and death while he could. And folks, that's a responsible thing. It's a responsible thing to prepare for your death, both spiritually and materially. Spiritually, you must call on the name of the Lord in faith, believing lest you die in your sin. Materially, you can declare your desire and your intent for, for what you leave behind. And I would implore you in both counts to prepare for your death. In this case, Isaac summoned his firstborn son Esau in purpose to give Esau his blessing there in verse number four. Now, there's a difference between a birthright and a blessing, The birthright, if we cheat ahead to verse 36, we find that the birthright is different than the the blessing and we can gain some insight from Esau's complaint in verse 36. This may spoil the story for you, but it makes the distinction. Look at verse 36. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me. Jacob means to supplant. It means to replace or usurp by some deceptive means. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthrights. And now look, he has taken away my blessing. The birthright was intended for the firstborn. It was the right of the firstborn to inherit the estate with all of its privileges. In this case, the birthright should have gone to Esau. However, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup to Jacob back in Genesis 25. You recall that, again, that, that event. The blessing, on the other hand, was something that could be given regardless of birthright. And when we get to the blessing in just a moment in verses 28 and 29, we will find that Isaac tried to frame the blessing for Esau in a way that would counter and compensate for Esau's loss of the birthrights. So in verses one through four, Isaac was preparing to do what he could do to mitigate the injustice for Esau in losing or in selling the birthright by giving Esau a blessing. And for that reason, I'm going to call Isaac, number one in your notes, unspiritual. The unspiritual father, Isaac. You ask, but why do you call him unspiritual? 
I call Isaac unspiritual at this point because in verses 28 and 29, again, we'll get there in a moment, Isaac's intent in blessing Esau was contrary to the declared purposes of God. And it was done in conjunction with an inordinate emphasis on the flesh. In fact, this entire episode we will find is centered around a meal. In Genesis 27, savory food or savory meat is mentioned six times. Venison is named seven times. Eating is, is mentioned eight times. It's all about a meal. And there's so much irony here for Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and now Esau is trying to get it back again for a plate of meats. And Isaac is hoping to impart a blessing to Esau in the strength of the flesh. That's why I'm calling him the unspiritual father. Listen to Paul's commentary on this in Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And Isaac here is unwilling or rather maybe he's willing to set aside God's word. He's willing to set aside God's will to satisfy his own appetites, his own way. And we see this many times in the scripture. It's seen in Abraham marrying Hagar. It's seen in Lot choosing Sodom. It's seen in Joshua who made a covenant with Gibeon. It's seen in Saul sparing Agag or Jonah fleeing to Tarshish. And many times we as well, we wrestle with the clear biblical commands of God in favor of our own wants and our own will and our own wishes in the flesh. That's unspiritual. It's fleshly. Isaac was unspiritual at this point. It's it's very sad, but the the plot thickens. Verse number five. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I might eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. If Isaac is the unspiritual father, then I'm gonna submit that Rebekah is the unsurrendered wife, the unsurrendered wife, Rebekah. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all the details, but I suggest that Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was not all that it once was. Back in chapter 24, verse 67, the Bible says that Isaac loved Rebekah. In chapter 25, verse 28, it says that Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob, Here now in chapter 27, verse number four, the Bible says that Isaac loved savory food. And I can tell you that their loves were misplaced. Their marriage is dysfunctional. Their parenting is one of favoritism for either of the boys, Jacob and Esau. So Rebecca here is pulling a fast one over on her husband, Isaac. Of course, we might be tempted to to defend Rebecca at this point. After all, if her husband is unspiritual, we just established that, 
What's a woman to do with an unspiritual husband? Should Rebecca just sit idly by and watch Isaac disobey God's will? Perhaps you have an idea. Well, let me suggest that for starters, what if Rebecca would have discussed this matter with her husband, Isaac? What if Rebecca would have discussed this matter with her son, Esau? What if Rebecca would have discussed this with God? We have no record of these things. Rather, it looks like she's taking matters into her own hands with a philosophy that the end justifies the means. But folks, I would remind us that God doesn't need our clever little schemes to accomplish his will. God is not dependent upon our cheating or our lying to achieve what he wants. And I would charge Rebecca with being unsurrendered to the authority of God over her in her home. Now, this is a delicate matter, certainly in our culture today, but I think it's part of the dysfunction that existed. And I would say wives, I would say this to you, wives, know this. You cannot, you cannot know God's blessing upon you in your home if you are working secretly contrary to your husband. Even if he is misguided in some way, and many times men are misguided, husbands are misguided, many times there are men, husbands, Christian fathers who are unspiritual, you see. But don't claim that as justification for secretly working to subvert your husband and expect the blessing of God. Don't behave in that way and think of it to be a virtue. Now, Isaac is unspiritual. I'm submitting that Rebecca is unsurrendered. What about Jacob? Jacob, the unethical brother, Jacob. And I would invite you to follow as I read an extended portion now of the, the narrative beginning in verse number 11. The unethical bre- brother Jacob, Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. So I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. That's the, the, the goal here. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Esau, Esau his father, I'm sorry, Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Letter A, Jacob's deceptive lie. 
Jacob's deceptive lie, I was able to count four lies that Jacob told in verses 19 and 20 alone. If, if you look there, beginning in, back in verse 19 again, Jacob lied about the person he was. Verse 19, Jacob said, I am Esau, your firstborn. In fact, he restated that same line in verse 24. If you see it there, Jacob said, um, I, I, I am he. I am Esau. Jacob lied about his person. Secondly, Jacob lied about the performance that he did. In verse 19 again, Jacob said, I have done just as you have told me. That's not true. Jacob, you lied. Also in verse 19, Jacob lied about the provisions, his person, his performance, the provisions. Jacob said in verse 19, eat of my game. Well, it wasn't wild game. It was domesticated goat meat is what it was prepared in a special way, evidently. Jacob lied about the provisions there, and then Jacob lied about providence. Verse 20, you see it there? He lied about the providence. Jacob said, the Lord your God brought it to me. Folks, this is perhaps the worst lie of all, for it it abuses God by attributing evil to him. And the lies here were partly plausible because Isaac's senses were failing him. We know from verse number two that his sight was failing him. He was was blind. His smell deceived him. Even though he he smelled the the garments, the earthly smell of garments, thinking it was Jacob and not Esau, and then his taste failed him. He thought the goat meat was venison. Then his feeling failed him as he touched the skins on, on Jacob's arm thinking it was Esau. It was only Isaac's hearing that rang true. You sound like my son Jacob, but to touch you appear to be Esau. And he could not believe what he heard. Poor old Isaac, his his senses were wrong. He was suspicious, but he, he really couldn't put his finger on it, if you will, proverbially, and he was conflicted. He was unaware of the secret strategy of of his wife Rebecca and Jacob to deceive Esau. So in the end, what's Isaac to do? In the end, Isaac did what carnal men do. He went by his feelings, which were misguided. He ate the hearty meal, satisfying his flesh, and he prepared himself to do the patriarchal duty. Jacob's deceptive lie, letter B, Jacob's defrauded blessing. The defrauded blessing. Verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of my, his son's game that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you 
So he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate of it before you came and I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Folks, Isaac here now is devastated when he realizes what had just happened. He thought he outwitted God in giving the blessing to Esau. But no, it's a rude awakening for Isaac. In verse 33, it says that he trembled exceedingly. Why? What was the source of that trembling? Did Isaac fear Jacob? Was Isaac angry with Rebekah? I would suggest that Isaac's trembling here was a conviction of sin. And I believe that Isaac's conviction of sin there at the end of verse 33 because because he affirmed the blessing to Jacob. He affirmed that what he had said to Jacob would in fact stick even though Esau wanted him to reverse it. And I think this is where Hebrews 11 verse 20, perhaps you jot that in the margin. Hebrews 11 verse 20 enters into the picture. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Look at verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me also, O my father. And so Esau's crying here is not the expression of repentance. Esau's crying is not about his own change of heart, but about his father's change of mind. Esau wanted his father to reverse the blessing and issue it to him. One who is truly repentant confesses their own sin. One who is truly repentant doesn't charge others with their sin as Esau did in accusing Jacob of stealing his birthright back in verse 26. Actually, Esau sold it to Jacob. But but keep reading, verse 35, but he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob for he has supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright back in chapter 25. And now look, he has taken away my blessing here just a few verses earlier And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed I have made him your master. And all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing? My father bless me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth, the dew of the heaven from above, By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. This is the key. This is God's declared will from the beginning. The younger, I'm sorry, the older shall serve the younger, right? Romans chapter nine, God says, Jacob have I chosen, Esau have I hated. This is God's declared and decreed will. Shall come to pass when you shall become restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Ultimately, Isaac did bless Esau to a degree. Again, Hebrews 11 verse 20 explains that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. But Esau is vowing for revenge in verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Number four, the unavenged son, Esau. I might remind us that Esau was also called Edom. The descendants of Esau are are the Edomites. 
And history records how that Edomites have perpetual hatred for the children of Israel. There have been prominent Edomites over the years, also called Edomians. Perhaps you're familiar with that term. King Herod was an Edomian. He tried to kill the Christ child in Bethlehem. Adolf Hitler identified with the Edomites or the Edomians. More recently, one named Yasser Arafat claimed that he was an Edomian or an Edomite from the line of Esau. But here in Genesis 27, Rebecca overhears Esau's threat. She was quite the eavesdropping wife, evidently. And she overhears now Esau's threat. He sends Jacob, she sends Jacob away to her brother Laban for safety, verse 42. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebecca. So she sent in and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. And stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? The few days there in verses 33 and 34 really became a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Rebecca never saw Jacob again. She never met her grandsons, ever. And folks, this is a devastating drama, a family drama that every member of the family failed in some way of disobedience or deception, devastating everyone all around. It's a sad account, it's a sad chapter, and and I don't imagine that any of us feel edified this morning because of what we've just read. So what do we do with an account like this? Let me leave you with three important principles. Three important principles I think that we can take away from this. First, we, we learn again about the sovereignty of God in the affairs of man. Now, we would never suggest that God causes man to sin in order to achieve his purposes. But we would say that God works in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of the horrific family drama in your home, your extended family. God still works, and I might formulate a principal statement. It's a lot to write down, but I I would say this. Man's failures can never thwart the will of God but in fact, they might actually fulfill it. They might fulfill it. Man's failures can never thwart the will of God, but they can fulfill it. There have been many times in my life where I have confessed to the Lord, Lord, I did wrong. Lord, I sinned. Lord, I erred. Lord, I failed. It was a wrong decision. Forgive me. Lord, please use my error to somehow in some way, accomplish your purposes. That's the honest transparency of my heart. Lord, I messed up big. I've caused a lot of hurt for a lot of people. Lord, I don't know what you can do with this mess, but could you somehow, some way, fulfill your all-wise purposes and plans in spite of me? A second important principle I think we learn, we learn about the doctrine of sin in this way. I would formulate it this way. Sin always causes separation. 
Sin always causes separation. We know that from Isaiah 59 verse two. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And then sin separates between men and men and rifts and divisions and families are profound because of our sin. Know that you, you never sin in a vacuum. I've had people tell me, but pastor, it's my own life, I can do what I want. How incredibly selfish and narrow-minded of you to think that your sin doesn't separate and affect a larger family. Maybe an immediate physical, biological family, maybe a, a church family even. Sin separates, and I don't care who you are or what your circumstance is. When you are harboring and hiding sin, like Jonah, you will rock the boat of those who sail with you. Most often severing relationships. Third, third important principle. It's about situational ethics. The situational ethic of this narrative of of perhaps manipulating circumstances in order to achieve some greater end, I would borrow this principal statement. It's never right to do wrong in order to do right. It is never right to do wrong in order to do right. And Jacob practiced situational ethics in in considering the plan of his mother in light of the practicality of it rather than the biblical principle. He was worried that his plan wouldn't work and not if the plan was right. And he agonized over the, the consequences of the plan if it failed but not the morality of the plan in the first place. And the conclusion was that if the conclusion worked well, it would be worth it. It's easy for us to understand in reading this text, but it's difficult to perceive in our own lives. And many times we deceive ourselves. Don't blame this on the wicked one. This is a self-deception. If, if I commit this wrong, but it turns out for the greater good, then I'm justified. Folks, I've titled our study this morning, Broken Blessing. It's an oxymoron of of sorts. It's sad that a blessing could be broken. It's a chapter about blessing. It's a chapter about the brokenness of a family. But the silver lining is this. The silver lining is that God uses our brokenness for his glory. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for that. Because I'm broken. My family is broken. Your family is broken. We are all dysfunctional in some way, and if we had the time to tell the stories, we all have some family drama, don't we? Shame on us. But at the same time, we praise the Lord for his perfect, infinite wisdom that takes our broken pieces and assembles them together for his glory. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the instruction of your holy word. And Lord, in spite of the sin and the selfishness of this family, you yet accomplished your your purposes and your will. Oh God, guard us with these principles. May May we know that it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. May we know that sin causes separation. And may we know that When we fail, you can overrule and still accomplish the good that you choose to do. We're thankful for that blessing, for I pray in Jesus' name, amen.